All right, welcome to Old Town, New World. We're here in downtown Rock Hill in the Revan studio. My name is Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. So today uh, we have a guest who is a dear friend of mine, but before I introduce him, I'd like to start out with uh, some something poignant, something powerful, something poetic from always wise, silent Micah. Micah, well said, well said. Way to put it succinctly, but with power. Um, you know, uh, Walt Whitman once said, Micah really says good things. Chris, how are you today? I'm a lot better now after that. <laughs> You look, you look handsome. Yeah, thank you. I feel wise now after those words. Okay, good, good. It might, you might have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, now to introduce our actual guest, <clears throat> his name is Ben Graham. He is part superhuman, part normal human. He's a teacher in uh, Asheville, north of Asheville, and uh, he can tell us about that. Welcome to the program, Ben. Thank you. Happy to be here. Ben is a dear friend of mine. When I lived in Asheville, uh, let's see, I moved up to Asheville to finish undergrad. And um, <clears throat> that would have been in, God, 95. And I did a few years of undergrad, finished it, and Dixie moved up there with me. Um, and let's see, when, we didn't meet until, what, 2000 and... I'm thinking around 2000. 99, 99, right when our wives started graduate school. Yeah, okay, so we went to Vermont, Dixie and I, and we came back for Mm -hmm. Dixie to start that program. Yeah, I think 99. And did y'all move to Asheville to start that program? We did. Okay, cool. So Jessica, his wife, uh, got a counselor's uh, degree from Western, and so did my wife. And uh, now you and Jessica work at the same school, right? We do. What school is that? It is North Buncombe High School, just about seven miles north of Asheville. She's a counselor, and... I'm a history teacher. So what history? <clears throat> well, my specialty, my go-to is AP world history. Wow. Um, but then I also do American history, and I spend a lot of... Basically, anything I teach ends up being humanities. Yeah, right. They're like, we need you to watch these kids in the gym, and you're like, all right, guys. All right, art. all right. Let's start with Athens. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to need... <laughs> you're like, they're, they're four. Kid, put out your suit. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that kid's four. Well, he's smoking, and he needs to know about Athens. Yeah, I'll tell you right now. He's like, you got to die sometime. I'm like, all right, let's go to existentialism. We'll go straight <laughs> yeah, to We'll start there. We'll go straight to yeah, it. Yeah, right. So Nietzsche. <laughs> right. Um, whatever connects, man. Whatever yes, connects. Yeah, whatever it takes. So anyway, you were already a teacher. Wait, you got pause here. Isn't bunkum an old world slang term for like fake medicine? I'm just kidding. That's bunk. bunk or, yeah, false and then religion. Bunkum? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> that's, he's puddling. He's peddling bunkum. And it was common in the pirating age. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. apparently. Yeah. Uh, very common in the Tortugas. <laughs> Tortugas. We hit that really yeah. hard in yeah. history. Yeah. Crossover. Right. Um, <laughs> So do you just make up history like this sometimes just for fun? Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're on a secret mission to misinform generations yeah, yeah, that's, of people. That's kind of my go-to. <laughs> right. um, we, talk, we talk a lot about dragons. Right. A lot <laughs> about dragons. Nice. Um, yeah, big winners. Yeah. So, okay, so let me back up here a second. So we met at the uh, end of the millennium. Mm-hmm. Right, yep. back Y2K. In the, 
Yeah. Oh, so we were terrified about watching. I remember it. your anxiety. Yeah, I remember being yours. Just yeah, out of this world. Yeah. Well, we dug that tunnel. Really, we did. And it yeah. was. It took forever. <laughs> so much concrete, so little time. Really. <sighs> and you know, we lost Lenny in the tunnel. So we did. Me, yeah. We did. And uh, it's a good way to go. Still a hard loss to take. It is. It is. Um, so, uh, and it also, <clears throat> uh, you know, the Backstreet Boys put out the record Millennium. Yeah. In right. that particular year. <clears throat> Right, which Landmark. was good tunnel music. The good tunnel music, yeah. and you know, for me, is really like a you know a watershed moment in my personal life. Right, um, yeah. I want it yeah. that way. Well, yeah. so that's oh, yeah. that's, that's where you yeah, end your AP history courses, right? With the release of that album. Actually, typically, I, I start it. <laughs> okay, there. Uh, start it's called it. World History. Oh, right. So yeah, I assume true. that the Backstreet Boys is that's right. what that's yeah. what the kids yeah. want, right? <laughs> <laughs> they have no idea who that is. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you like the kids are into that? They're like, what's a kid? My grandfather listened to that. <laughs> the kids, you know, 20 years ago, they were really into it. I know what you like. I got you some Backstreet Boys puff stickers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Glittery puff stickers. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm hip. I'm hip. The Partridge yeah. family. I get it. Yeah. I told a joke that involved a scratch and sniff sticker, and my kids looked at me like, so what's a scratch and sniff oh, sticker? <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. That's not even the punchline. They were like, we don't get it. And then, you, and then you explained what it was, and they were like, oh, you mean like an iPhone? Yeah, app? right. <laughs> like the smell app? The smell <laughs> <app>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're such an adult, you don't even know that the iPhone has a smell app. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wait a minute, does the iPhone have a smell app? Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, it does. It has, Wait, it has, seriously. It has, it has olfactory descriptive audio. I'm just um, so when Ben and I first met, uh, Jessica and Dixie were wanting to get together and hang out because they had met at this program and they had you know liked each other. They thought, oh, we'll get together and have a beer and introduce our husbands and maybe they will be will tolerate each other for the you know the length of the dinner or whatever and we got there and uh ben sat beside me like before i think dixie and jessica even realized where each other were or maybe they went to the restaurant or something, i don't know but and we started talking we became so obnoxiously like best friends from that moment <laughs> we forward did. We did. the girls would be like god can we go home and we're like no 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 yeah. one more instant yeah. rose yeah exactly yeah, yeah it was a lot it of was fun. there was iron maiden talked about that evening iron i recall maiden, that yes. i yeah. recall that which our next beer here is uh, an iron maiden beer that we bought from the local what's the name of the local place main Bo- street bottling company main street bottling bottle company. Bottle mm-hmm. company bottle Sorry, company not bottling yeah they don't, don't bottle they actually it. bottle they it just they're not making the iron maiden beer right so main street bottle <laughs> company's downtown rock hill on main street it's a cool little place tiny little space that they've turned into something cool and they actually run a business out of it that's some type of business they do you know online primarily but excuse me while they're sitting in their in their office they might as well have it full of beer yeah, and be sell it to the public yeah <laughs> so it'd be loaded yeah those yeah, will right. be loaded while they're conducting business <laughs> doing data entry <laughs> <laughs> nice okay so that's how Ben and I got to know each other. We got into a band. Mm-hmm. We played a lot of acoustic music. Are you still playing music? Yeah, a little bit. What kind of music are you playing? Um, either I play punk rock music or super, super acoustic mellow music. Right. Mm. That I can't help but write, but I don't want to write it. Do you ever make fun of yourself? Like as the punk rock Ben? Do you ever <laughs> make fun of the other like, guy? It's, it's a challenge. It's, <laughs> like, it's, it's such a challenge. You're like, I just want to write this song that sounds like Bad right. Brains. And then it comes out... You know, sounding like James Taylor. Right. And you're yeah. like, why? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, these are not, 
These are first world problems. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, why? So yeah. Sad. Yeah. So uh, I cried I, and put on a right. backpack. You know? backpack yeah. yeah. I wanted to make I wanted to make a Bad Brain song. I made a brilliant James Taylor song. Yeah. Oh, I hate my life. Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah. It got an Emmy. Yeah. <laughs> or Grammy, I guess. Yeah. What an Oscar! What an Oscar! Come on. This is crazy. Yeah. yeah. Come on, not an Oscar. Everything's terrible. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but yeah. I was still playing i still write um you know i got two little kids so it's the time is harder to put in but um how old are your kids uh they are 10 and 7 wow that's awesome so you know but you still playing yeah man um i have a pretend band that never practices um but we are we have a nine song set list and so we're proud of that we just don't ever practice so we'll make it happen eventually chris is back in his old band from teenagehood yeah let's go now what has this been it was a band called Young Tom Fury, which was a Ray Bradbury reference. I always feel like I have to say because otherwise it sounds like total bunkum. Um, I don't like to sound like <laughs> I'm... Can't have that. Yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm spouting bunkum. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a band from when I was very young, and we, every... It's one of those things where it's, like, the first real band I ever had, and it was true for a lot of us in the band, and every, like, four years we'll kind of get back together and play a few shows, and then... Which is cool, because, you know, when you're that age and you're in a band... I mean, you know this from um, mm-hmm. Callie's Paul. Yeah. And, uh, of course, they were a little bit younger than that. You were in college with Callie's Paul, right? But, you know, when you're young like that and you have that incredibly strong network of friends, if you're a good band, you become a huge band. Like, you know what I mean? You have 100 people at your shows and people know all the lyrics and they sing. You know, and then you're an adult and you try to form a band and, like, three people show up. Yeah, well, that's what's so great about bands when you're young, like you guys getting back together, is that you don't, you know, for especially when you're, like, say, under 21, because kids don't naturally have these things to go do unless Mm -hmm. they're put on by grown-ups. So, like, that type of music, punk rock music, and that show and that vibe, it gives you something to do. And all the kids come... And it's so it's so it's so much more about music than it is about building that community. Right. And hey, let's make this thing. Let's make this thing. And yeah. I love that so much. So I love that you guys are getting back together. And that energy, you know, continues between like shows and stuff because you're all at school together, and so you're all around each other, and you're waiting for the big show that's coming up in two weeks. And you know what I mean? It's like you're yeah. you're driving around and, and pasting flyers up together. And yeah. You know and I mean? you're it's making like, flyers. Yeah. You're making. You gotta think them. about what, yeah. what's going to be on that flyer. Right. Well, this this. <clears throat> Dates me is probably the oldest guy. It's definitely the oldest guy in the room, but, you know, and, and cutting and pasting, like, literally, oh, yeah. scissors and glue. Yeah, I'm with you Cutting yeah. and pasting literally. to make a flyer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah, was but, the day. And, and this I, this has come up before. I, like, I started playing in bands, like, right when all that stuff became impractical. But I wanted to play music before that. So right. we were constantly, like, tr- we were in, like... Photoshop trying to make our flyers look like we made them with scissors. Oh, scissors. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, we yeah. thought that was cool. That was what we wanted to do, but yeah. it was like way easier for us to just make a Photoshop email You know, you even see it. that resurgence today. I look at some of like Mike Gentry's flyers and stuff and feel like he's trying to create like he just, he like cut it out of a magazine yeah. and pasted it on um, something. Yeah. You know, it's like an aesthetic that it, it harkens back to kind of a punk rock era. Yeah. it's And it's funny that how many years I guess I've been alive that I got to be like the first thing we ever recorded, we made cassette tape demo, and it was definitely like past when people were doing that, and it was like a lot of like, why are you guys doing that? Like, why don't you just burn CDs? Yeah, right. And then now it's back around to cassette tape demos mm-hmm. or yeah. whatever. So it's like I got to see that like where that died, and then now and it's like happening people, again. Yeah, it's like a retro thing. 
I think about that all the time. Like I, being in those bands and doing all those things and making cassettes and making flyers and learning how to design them and copy them and booking shows at VFWs yeah. and, and stuff like that. I learned so many life skills, oh my God. like Absolutely. so much of what like even in teaching and even as a dad and everything yeah. came from that. Like that was the crucible by which I was yeah. formed. And I, I at the time I would have never realized it because I was just trying to hang out with my friends and do all these things. But being in that world, you know, I mean, how much of what you guys do, because y'all are in this design world, y'all are in all these things, how much of it, you know, was really forged in that? That's a good question. I mean, Chris. I mean, I've thought that before on the podcast and pretty much anytime we have bands on. Like, I mean, I went from, for me, I went from someone who, like, was pretty much, like, agoraphobic. Like, as a teenager, I did nothing. I was completely non-social. Oh, that's bunkum. That's, that's, oh, I got some spreading a bunch of bunkum now. <laughs> Again. Yeah. <laughs> I just landed myself in Buncombe County over here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this sounds so disrespectful to Buncombe County. No, we love when Buncombe County. When you look at the County. spelling of the word, too, it actually doesn't. But, no, but it doesn't look at that. Oh, when you say it, it's like Buncombe. It's like B-U-N-K. Yeah. Like apostrophe U-M. Yar, that's a chest full of Buncombe. <laughs> it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's call it like it is. But it is an let's attractive like looking it. word. Yeah. So it's weird. It's a weird dichotomy. Of York Buncombe. is solid. York always York. just makes me think it's English. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It also kind of sounds like somebody vomiting. York. <laughs> it, could to- <laughs> it could totally be a verb. That guy yeah. totally York. He yeah. worked all yeah. over that place. Man. I thought Jason had it in the bag, but then he could fully York. York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think being in bands, in addition to like making me go from being like someone who, like I said, was just totally like never left the house, completely changed me in that way. But then also, it's like what you were saying, It it's the thing that and I bring up this up a lot as well, the idea that, like, well, that kid or that person doesn't want to do anything. And, like, I think that's fake. That's just not real. There's no human that doesn't want to do something. And I think for a lot of kids, being in a band is the first thing that they really feel passionate about. It's ever theirs. And then eventually they learn that, like, well, this thing that whatever my parents were doing, you know, they were getting paid for a job or whatever, but they had at some point to take control and take responsibility and make things happen. And I think for a lot of kids, the first time that ever occurs is in a band where you have to make things happen. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I mean, definitely my whole kind of entrepreneurial spirit come was born out of those years, man. We put out records and booked shows and wrote songs and we practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. You know what I mean? It was like, and, and I, and I was in, in, Maybe I don't know if that's the right word, but with the embiggened, embiggened, <laughs> <laughs> I was embiggened. That, you know what that was? <laughs> that was a bunch of bunkum. That was bunkum. I'll say that right to your face. <laughs> <laughs> you yorked it to your other face. <laughs> really yorked that one. You yorked hey, try again with this sentence. You're yeah. really yorking it. So, um, <laughs> no, I was really like I don't know. I was, I was m- moved. I was changed by the whole idea that. You know, to make it happen, um, I don't, I don't, I've lost what I was talking about at this point. Where was I? Th- we're, well, we're talking you were about- talking about just generally how being in a punk rock band, like your entrepreneurial spirit, spirit, and how it, you know, it taught you all these things. And, yeah, because I was someone you have to make. It's for the first time in your life you ha- are responsible for making things happen. Yeah, exactly. So you know, all the stuff that we organized and we did and we practiced. Oh, this is what I was going to say. I'm sorry. So I, the idea that work is not the opposite of fun. Mm-hmm. That fun is not a lack of responsibility. Um, that fun is about being engaged in some meaningful way, the, the most fun. And so, you know, the band, I mean, was the most fun thing I ever did, but it wasn't because we were just 
yorking around. It was we were practicing and practicing and getting better and and having to return phone calls and make things happen like it was a business. And I think about that. I saw this article on LinkedIn, um, or I saw it on Twitter, and it had also been on LinkedIn, whatever. But I, but the article was about uh, the the quality of life in European nations. And it was the cities that have the highest quality of life, and the way they put forward the argument of like this is how we measure their quality of life was who works the least in a week. Mm-hmm. So it was like, and who travel and who quote holidays the most. So. If somebody only worked 30 hours a week and took five weeks of holiday, they were considered to have the best quality of life. And I was like, that's completely flawed from the barrier. That's saying that work is bad and, and makes you unhappy and that holiday is, is good and makes you happy. And I, I def, that's definitely not my experience. I mean, I know you love teaching, Ben. I mean, what would you say to that? Yeah, I t- completely agree. I find that I'm happiest in my life when I have something that gives me meaning, when I feel like I'm making something that's never been there before and that I'm creating and that I'm doing it, like you were saying, Chris, from the ground up. It's not something you know, institutional or something above me or an adult when I was a kid telling me, hey, you should do X and then doing it or giving me the opportunity. It's me finding something that drives me, finding that passion and following it, you know, hell or high water. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, you're definitely going to put in work on it, but you love it. That's why you're putting in the work, just like you would with your... Right. It just, it means so much to you. It's what makes you tick. And for me, as we've talked about before... Teaching is that for me. Yeah. I love being in that classroom. I love being around, you know, those high school kids who are insane. And I love, you know, having these discussions and wrestling with topics. So tell the Wolverine story real quick. <laughs> is this about an insane high school kid? Uh, not really. He went on to do great things. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> to become a Wolverine? Okay, we, no. Okay, so I was teaching AP World History. And, you know, as part of my joke, like we were teaching the Mongols. So I'm all about the Mongols, and I, I get off on these huge things. I love the Mongols because there's this great book out there by this guy named uh, Menzies, and it's about how Genghis Khan, like the Mongols get this rap that they were just these brute force and they killed everybody, and that's what they're known for, right? Mm-hmm. And that Genghis Khan had all these children. Like, so wait a minute. Don't take that from me. Are you about to yeah. take that from me? Go ahead. No, all that is true. <laughs> okay, all right? good, like, good, good. So run with it. <laughs> okay. all all that's true. Yeah. But the other thing that they did is, you know, they conquered the largest land empire in history. They basically conquered all of Asia and they created free trade opportunities and they took, you know, brilliant doctors from, say, the Abbasid Caliphate in the Middle East and moved them to China to spread those ideas. They invented the passport for free passage. Wow. So they really did create, I mean, it's not an exaggeration in many ways and in a certain way of looking at it, that they created a modern global economy. Right. They truly did. They also spread the Black Plague, just like a modern global <laughs> yeah, economy right. will. Yeah, it right, will right, spread yeah. both the good and the bad. Guns, germs, and steel. Bingo. So yeah. you see it all. You know, they're, they're, the borders are collapsing. So a lot of times when we look at the rise of modern globalization, the collapse of modern nation-state borders, the collapse of economic borders, the Mongols are a good piece, hmm. you know, to, st- to start with there and kind of go into that. So when I was talking about it— to provide some levity, I often reference the film, really more of an historical documentary called Red Dawn. Nice. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with it. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, uh, Colorado High School is attacked. Uh, from Canada. Uh, from by Canada. Russians. <laughs> yeah. Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, shoot down and start just shooting yeah, the back yeah. of the just high everybody. school. Everybody. Yeah. Well, yeah. Randomly <laughs> shooting the back yeah, of the high right, school. Right, right. Yeah. Charlie Sheen, essentially, and Patrick Swayze are able to save... The world. Right, uh, basically. Long story short. Yeah. Anyways, the high school... By peeing into a radiator. <laughs> yeah. 
So I continue, yes, please. Yes, this is all true. Yeah. There is a guy, the teacher at the beginning of that movie is a large African-American man whose name is Mr. Tisdale. And Mr. Tisdale is in the middle of a lecture on the role of the Mongols. Oh, no way. Yes, he is. Oh, wow. And he's in there, and he's, going, and he's going like, the Mongols. He's like this, he has this like southern accent in Colorado. He's like, the Mongols will encircle their prey. <laughs> and the Mongols, when they saw each other, they knew that it would, the damage was done. <laughs> and so he's like going into it. They have like these close up tight shots on Charlie Sheen going, oh my lord. Like the, the kids, I swear, like please go back and watch it. The kids are the most engaged kids you've ever seen wow. in your life. It is not real. All right, so he's in the middle of that and all of a sudden like out of the window, he sees parachuting. Wow. <laughs> and he goes, oh, Highly unusual. <laughs> he, like, stops oh, the, the lecture. Yeah, he stops I, I the lecture mid, mid, like right in the middle of Mongols. He's like, this, they must have been way off course. And, and one of the kids yells, you should do something, Mr. Tisdale. <laughs> and so sure enough, Tisdale walks straight at him and they mow him down with nice. a machine gun in a terrible Tisdale. way. So I usually use that as, as an <laughs> intro point to right. the Mongols. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm like, kids, it's a documentary. You know, yeah, this right. was, it was tough times in 83. Yeah. Uh, wow. That must, like, for kids now, to the concept of Red Dawn and the way you're describing it must make no sense. <laughs> it makes yeah. no sense. And they're like, the, the, the Russian, like, you know, they weren't born when the Cold War was going on, right. obviously. Yeah. So it literally is all history for them. So, anyways, I use that as a point. Yeah. Which is hilarious. <laughs> Well, then typically we end up talking about the Wolverines. I don't know if y'all remember that movie, but that was their high school mascot. Wolverine. And so they were like, yeah, they were like this partisan band, guerrilla group. And they're like, Wolverine! Yeah. Like, and they used all these great guerrilla warfare tactics. And they would yell it like that. They would yeah. scream it. Uh, Jennifer Grey would scream it, you know, pre-Dirty <laughs> Dan. Nobody puts Wolverines in it. Yeah, right. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That was what right. she was saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, that year, you know, we kind of went crazy on it and we get to the end of the year and we're having this award ceremony at my high school and it's typically for all the students, but... But weren't you receiving like, Yeah, so the, the they, they were like, yeah. listen, you need to come to this award ceremony because you need to be there. So I show up and they give me this award from Coca-Cola. It was an was Oscar. Nominated, right. Oscar for my Ooh. James Taylor sounding yeah, bad yeah. brains record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you were so mad. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to smash this. It's like HR It's would. called Yorkin and Bunkum yeah, County. it's called York. <laughs> It's called No More Bunkum. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so I get up there and they're like, they gave me this really nice award. It was, it was great. A student recommended me for it. And I accept it from the Coca-Cola Foundation. And as I'm accepting it, like, you know, the kids and the parents, they stand up and give me applause, which was great. And I'm like, I'm holding the award. It's a true story. And I look out the auditorium and I see this one kid who was in my class. His name was Steven. And I see Steven and everybody right sits yeah. down. Like, you know, the, the applause dies down and everybody sits down. And Steven remains standing. And he's in the middle of the auditorium. That's not, I mean, he's in the middle of the auditorium. And I see him and I make eye contact with him. And I, I, I literally, with my head, I shook my head. Because <laughs> I knew, I just saw it. I saw it. I saw it in his eyes, and he puts his puts his hand up his eye and screams as loud as he can. Wolverine! 
That's amazing. Wow. It was amazing. I I, yeah. uh, I gave the fist bump, walked off. That's when what you know. Amazing moment. I knew I had made good choices. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a pinnacle, really. It, that's I'm, like a movie. You know, that's not a total exaggeration. <laughs> know, that really was. That a really is like a movie where the like the piano starts. You know, yeah, like, it really yeah. was. It's still legend. Yeah, I ran yeah. into that kid uh, at a former student's mine's wedding this last year. Oh wow, very. And cool. And we we oh, discussed awesome. this. That's hilarious. At length, and my wife just sat there shaking her head. That's so cool. Because she's yeah. had to listen to many a Red Dawn reference. <laughs> I want to um, transition a little bit here and ask you, when, when, when you first got to town and we were walking around downtown, heading to the bottle shop and over to the Revflow office and all, Ben, you, you commented that uh, you were in Ohio last week. And you were in what, what city? Columbus. Columbus. And you were talking about how you love cities. So, and you live in Asheville, and so, you know, you, you, you frequently are... Um, hiking or you know by a waterfall or whatever so you get plenty of that um which is great and we all love that at least in theory some of us some of the great endorsement love it in theory <laughs> endorsement but uh don't <laughs> practice it as much but um but what about cities like why are you all about cities right now well i think i'm all about cities on a personal level a because i don't live in a huge city i mean Asheville's vibrant it's amazing and i love Asheville, and um i love everything about it but it's not huge. It just doesn't have the wide variety that huge cities do. So whenever I visit a huge city, um, man, I, you know, I love the diversity of people. I love the diversity of industry. I love the different neighborhoods. How you go to a different neighborhood, every neighborhood has a different flavor to yeah. it. It has a different feel to it. Um, and I'm just captivated by that. Yeah. And, uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with that I don't live in a big city. So that's kind of the yin to the yang. You know, it's just me trying to achieve some type of balance. Well, you know, it's funny how in a big city how there are neighborhoods. You know, um, it, there's a. I saw this. Uh, I guess it was maybe a TED Talk video or something, and it was talking about cities that when you fly over the oldest cities of Europe, um, and you look at them above, and then when you look at a map of you know New York from above, even even in the big cities, what you see is you start to see these circles that um, within a mile and a half uh, circle included in that is everything that you need in your life basically you have your groceries and your job and your this that and the other and so you have this kind of radius of kind of walkable and kind of walk plus transit whether it's a bike or a little trolley or whatever but um that basically creates a whole ecosystem and then when you when you have a giant city instead of that ecosystem being larger per se it's more of them kind of bubbled together and they overlap and this that and the other but but it's it's fascinating to me that we replicate the kind of village paradigm in the largest of cities. You know, like my buddy Bardo lives in in Manhattan, and um, you know, when you talk to him, he's like, he goes to the same drugstore and the same grocery store and the same five restaurants and the same like you know art house theater and like he does the same stuff in general until he ventures out and does something exciting quote unquote but you know what i'm saying yeah yeah that's weird like as someone from a small town i imagine every citizen of new york is constantly in every square foot of, of new, new york, york. Yeah, yeah right yeah, yeah. I do. it's yeah, a completely yeah, abstract yeah. idea yeah. of the new york person who right. just is everywhere in new york all the time yeah i've come to appreciate large cities, at least in the United States, certainly true in Europe as well, but in the United States as more of a collection of neighborhoods. I mean, even here in the Charlotte metropolitan area, um, 
that's even true. Like yeah. I remember when I was a kid coming to Charlotte and obviously I grew up in Winston-Salem. So, but we would come to Charlotte for Hornets games, different things like that. And I didn't think of Charlotte as like this huge city. It seemed manageable. It yeah. seemed like you could get your head around it. I remember feeling it wasn't that different than say Winston-Salem. Right. I never thought of it as a bigger city. It just had that. a few buildings that were taller and that, that was about it. That was seriously, yeah. that seemed it. And yeah. I'd never really appreciated that. Now when I come here and my wife grew up just outside here, so we come here fairly often. Um, I still feel like it, it, that what Charlotte has done, though the uptown area has grown and, you know, there's even larger buildings and, and more of a vibrant spirit to it, still a collection of neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. if anything, the city has spread out to encapsulate more of the yeah. neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. they've become more vibrant in each neighborhood. Like South End is so vibrant. Yeah, South Central End. is so vibrant. Yeah. You know, each of the na- – the revitalization of Charlotte didn't happen the way I think city leaders thought, oh – well, we'll make downtown happening by putting bars and stuff because it was all businesses. Like that happened, yes, but the real vibrancy is happening in the boroughs around the city. Right. Where people live, they come home from work out to the like spoke from the center yep. of the wheel and they want to go and grab a bite and have a drink and go to a party and that's where the activities happening you know right and many of those places already existed yeah. before they even built that stuff in uptown yeah. like mm-hmm. uh like matthews yeah. and you know out in pineville and mint hill and huntersville you know Absolutely. but now they've become sort of Part of it, I, I, I assume, y'all may know more about this than I do, that that's sort of how Atlanta grew. I mean, Atlanta has a, yeah, yeah, a dominant yeah. downtown, Absolutely. but, you know, so much of Atlanta uh-huh. are these, like, smaller cities on the outside, like Decatur or whatever. Atlanta's constantly used as, a, as an example of a poor uh, development of a city because um, what I hear from you know about it and, and kind of see is that the idea is that it wasn't about – it wasn't a positive kind of, um, you know, revitalization of, of neighborhoods that had had kind of cultural identities in and of themselves or something. It was a cut it all down, four lane it all, strip mall it all, and put giant houses in this area and put small houses in this area, and it was like that kind of development, you know. But it did result in a medieval times. And so can we just stop for a second <laughs> so we, and take yeah, our hat yeah. off for that right, and say, that's should. no bunkum. Yeah. That's something, no okay, right. something right. That ain't no bunkum. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I'm sorry. Anyways. So so I got to get to this, you being a history teacher. I've been, mm. I've been uh, traipsing around the country, spouting out bunkum about this. Um, Is that like a jig? Traips? <laughs> traips and yeah. yeah I mean, Similar. I've been sashaying jam. from town to town. <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen the video for Safety Dance? <laughs> yeah, that's you. <laughs> you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> Dad says you don't get back on defense. <laughs> you tell I'm him busting to run it every it. night every out night. there. <laughs> <laughs> every single. Um, I got, I've been traipsing around the country saying that we are in a new renaissance. Mm-hmm. And that each town that I go to is a Florence Mm-hmm. of the new renaissance. And my argument is that coming out of the uh, dark ages in, in Europe, you had the, this incredible centralization um, coming from the, you know, the church and the feudal lords and all that stuff. You had a lockdown on information and goods and all that stuff. And then just lots of poor people like dying like eating black plague for dinner. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. All over their hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, right. thanks, Mongols. <laughs> yeah, and there's yeah. your second. <laughs> and there's your second. Wolverine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tisdale, thanks Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Mister Tisdale. Um, 
So, and then you had this explosion. Now, Florence is, of course, just the poster child of it. It was happening mm-hmm. in other places and stuff, too. But, but you had this explosion of the middle class, essentially mm-hmm. explosion of the creative class. It was a 1099 contracting society. And I always talk about how Venice was kind of a natural port because it was on the water and everything. Mm-hmm. But Florence wasn't. So they intentionally invested in placemaking. They made Florence awesome. They, they invested in bringing artists and interesting people to create crazy stuff. The Medicis were paying for it all, basically. They had the guilds that were bringing together artists and bankers and making decisions with like creative people and stuff. And I even learned this, and you'll be proud of me, that the way Florence got rich was through textiles. Which wool? I'm, I think it was yeah, wool. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to yeah. do this. I want to do a book comparing Rock Hill to uh, Florence because of the textiles. And all. I but applaud anyway, that. But anyway, um, but what they did is they didn't have any of the raw materials for any of this kind of stuff. The people from the East were bringing them raw materials and bringing them like the berries and all that stuff, whatever, for dyeing. But they were innovating process. And they actually came up with all these incredible, innovative processes that made the textiles like last longer and be better looking. And all that, and it was that. And then so people would bring them the materials, and they'd buy back from them. You know, like they would make it, and then they'd buy it from them. So they got rich. If you think about that, if you look at the new economy and the knowledge economy, we're not talking necessarily about goods. Like if you look at Springs Creative, which is right across the street, they they cut and sew in Shanghai, but the people over there. 100 people over there, they're well-paying jobs. They're designers, uh, people who handle financing, who handle uh, distribution. It's all knowledge work. They're working on process and knowledge type of material and IP and all this stuff, and that's how they're getting rich. So my argument is that Florence's economy didn't say, okay, well, we're sitting on a you know, a, a giant cavern of diamonds, so we'll just you know, diamond mine until it runs out. Or They didn't have anything like that. What they brought to the world was, let's bring all the smart, creative, talented people here by making this place cool and paying for people to create cool stuff. And then we'll get rich because they'll create all kinds of new ways to do all kinds of new stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so how, as, a, as an AP history teacher, when mm-hmm. you look at, you teach the, you know, when you're teaching all the past. Sure. But as you get into, as you're approaching towards the end of the year where we are in the world now, and maybe you're doing that constantly, you can talk about your process, but do you, how do you see us now in a macro kind of cycle? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I, a, a few thoughts on that. Um, one, you know, my biggest thing about studying history is, you know, I don't really give a damn about history that much. I'm just, I'm huge, I'm just a fan of it as a source of inspiration for what we do now. Right. You know, I just feel like it's a, it, that's the well to which we go. Interesting, yeah. To, to, to push forward. So right. I'm, I'm way more interested in the now and what's next than I am in the past. I, I never really... So I just I feel like I'm sort of like a... I just use history in that sense. So I love that comparison to Florence. Yeah. You know, into the now. Like, how can Florence... What can we learn? Yeah. What can we use... What can we get from Florence that what inspires us now, economically, socially, politically? I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, you've written a lot about the the knowledge economy and the knowledge worker. It makes me think also of Eno hammocks. Um, are you familiar with Eno hammocks? I've never laid in, a, in one of those hammocks. Okay, they're like old Emo parachutes. Okay. Like, and they're, you know, like yeah. they're these hammocks. And they're very popular. Um, and they're based in Asheville. Like, oh, and it's, wow. ex- cool. it's exactly what you're saying. They're not manufactured in Asheville. They're manufactured over in Southeast Asia, right. East Asia. Um but, you know, all the designers are in Asheville. Yeah. That knowledge economy of which you speak is the same concept. I, I'm interested with Florence in the sense that I think, one, 
Florence is unique in that it's though it did it wasn't endowed with a ton of natural resources that it could rely on, it, which in some ways is a benefit because right. sometimes when you have all these natural resources, I think a lot of cities and municipalities overcommit. Yes. You know, and they just, yeah. that's, they don't worry about innovation. They don't worry about creativity. They're hey, just when like, cash is good. You don't have to solve problems. Exactly. That's cash right. covers all. Exactly. That's what my tattoo says. <laughs> <laughs> it's, on, it's on my stomach. And I often think about that with the development of, say, Latin American economies. So Latin American economies were, were colonized just like, say, the United States, Canada, Australia, South Africa, all wait, of these. Canada's in South America? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense with Red Dawn. Yeah. That's a mistake. Look, my geography comes from Red Dawn. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm gonna go it is a documentary. <laughs> I'm going to list that as a mistake on IMDb, man. <laughs> so, But those economies, once they, like, you know, had their revolutions in the early 18, early to mid 1800s and became independent countries, they really struggled to develop right. lasting economy, all of them, from yeah. Brazil to Argentina to Mexico to Costa Rica, to develop economies that have that creative spirit, that have innovation, that recruit the knowledge economy workers there yeah. because so so much dependence on sugar, on bananas, Africa on export economies. the same thing, man. Right. Diamonds and, and Exactly. Else, yeah. And even more recent as far as the decolonization yeah, yeah, yeah. policy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, I think Florence is a good example of that. How how can you recruit that? It helps, I think, in my opinion, that Florence is located in Italy yeah. because that essentially is a crossroads of Mediterranean trade. They yeah. were, despite not being resource rich, located on one of the most dominant trade routes yeah. on earth. They yeah. had tons of middle, like you said, they were able to, um, you know, be the middleman with the with the some of the textile trade, some of the spice trade as well, yeah. coming from the Middle East, the Ottomans over to the west and i think that was it's very possible though that they could have let things that come down that river they could have just washed their boats and um sold them uh prostitutes and uh alcohol and just been like happy to be doing pretty good right and not change the entire western like future in terms of and i and i over i over emphasize their value probably because they're to me they're the poster child of uh, an entire changing era <laughs> No, I don't think you overemphasize their value at all. I mean, I think most people, most historians would agree with you, especially when it comes to the to the European Renaissance. Right, they would, because yeah. they would say Rome and Venice were kind of the other major players early on, but they had these distinct benefits that Florence didn't, right? So Venice right. being on the water, already having a history of shipbuilding, yeah. and and you know, really had sort of a naval empire at that point. Rome having the papacy. And having the element of basically both religious and political control over the entire southern European area. Right. Florence had neither one of those things. Right, yeah. And so yet they— They just you know, started making statues. They just started stuff. tearing it up. <laughs> yeah. but, but here's my question for you, and I'm, I'm literally asking you this question. Like, whoa, whoa, you're, whoa, 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 whoa. Easy. You're literally asking I'm me I'm literally— Is this actually happening? Everybody's stuff. Whoa. Okay, wow. Um, why Florence? What—who, like— why did it happen in Florence? I believe that uh, a small group of people decided to do things in a very, very different way and that it had 
enough impact to change the world. You know that, what's that, uh, is it Margaret Mead quote? Uh, a small group of citizens can change the world. A small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. It's the only thing that ever it's has. It's the only thing that ever has, yeah. I, I really believe, and, um, and again, this is part of my kind of, you know, romanticism of that area, era, of course. I mean, I, I know that. But I believe that bringing together the guilds and deciding to placemake in that community to bring the most talented people. I mean, it's kind of like there's there's times when you see you know Mozart and all that crowd trying to go to what was it Vienna at that point mm-hmm. trying to, because they had to be there they had to be there it was like where everything was happening and so Florence was able to create on purpose where all the 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 genius types wanted to be and you had when you have people who are intelligent hardworking exceptional innovative people and everybody in the bar is that way. Then you have people working for cheap. You have people working for each other. You have people creating things left and right. You have innovation out of the wazoo. And if it wasn't for the Medici's or the Medici's, or have you say it, in my opinion, they wouldn't have turned all that into um, capitalizing on all that. So I think it's healthy. Like Rev and Flow, for example, mm-hmm. one of the things that I learned early on that I could bring value to is uh, – of course, we have a bunch of creative friends. Of course, we can create a bunch of amazing things. If I can step up and be the person who can figure out how we can all work together and pay all of our salaries by doing this cool creative stuff, then I'm the one who like kind of makes it all happen. You know? And so I think that I believe that there was very much that DIY uh, kind of collaborative leadership spirit in, that changed the world in that place. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the same thing. Do you think that them having the textile money had, oh, had yeah. played got, a huge yeah. role? Meaning that, you Hard know, the money, money was there. They, they, and yeah. now I, I agree with you. I think that they were very innovative in how they developed the textiles. You know what I mean? And how they developed, put themselves in a position where they were the, they were the go-to people. Yeah. Um, because after that, you know, they had the, the sort of the money to spend on Donatello or to have the competitions to yeah. design Brunelleschi's dome. Yeah. It's or like to push like DARPA that. having competitions yeah. Today, I mean, it's uh, it's you know it, the Medici's could have easily just kept that money and not paid all these artists to create amazing things. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Like, I, I'm intrigued by that because the the Medici family, I always not all of them, but, but Lorenzo being yeah. sort of the the dominant player there, he seems like such a. Um, Obviously, he's a big-time player, and they're banking. You know, they started that first huge bank yeah. that really—so they were making money with the banking. And he, though, seems civic-minded to me. Yeah. He what, seems yeah. civic-minded. He seems like he wants—you know, so much of the art that he was able to purchase and push goes to not his personal— Cathedral, but you know the Florence Cathedral, right, yeah. or to you know paving these streets or doing those things. I think that's so intriguing. Where do you see that now? Like in your, you know, making your connection now with like Florence, you know, say in the twelfth through the seventeenth century, compared to now, where where do you see that now? That's that taking creativity, taking innovation. You know what I mean, and then putting that into civic minded for the for the community. I see it in cities. That's why I asked about cities. I don't see it in state government, and I don't see it in uh, federal governments. And I don't. And I'm not a huge believer of the of the nation state. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I, I think the world is going to change. Where the country, the idea of a nation, a country is going to be something that comes into question. And, I think it already is. I think that's already in flux. Yeah. Um, because economically, socially, religiously, those those borders of nation states have already. 
Yeah. It's already clear that they're not right. really there. It's like we're going to pave a road to Canada and build a wall between Mexico. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that it's, seems insane. Yeah. Like, like, right. that, yeah. So I, I think that, no, that. I completely agree with you. Yeah. That's in flux currently. Yeah, so I see cities because I think cities are a, um, and I hesitate to use this word, but more of a natural or organic organization of people because to me I call it the village. I think it's kind of the natural organization where people that live in some type of proximity come to the center to trade um, and to experience, cult- trade whatever it is, trade experiences, culture, vibrancy, uh, activity, goods, you know, whatever. Now, you know, Wherever you have a train depot, you're going to have a town, and wherever you have good internet access, you're going to have a town. It's all about connectivity, you know. But I, I see in cities, in this city, in Rock Hill, I have been blown away. The civic leadership of this community, while everybody's running their business and has to make sure their business is profitable, granted, all the people that go to these meetings, it, it, the the amount of energy and effort that's put towards kind of civic betterment and um, being stewards of the community so that it doesn't, you know, inadvertently become something bad. But th- th- there's an intentionality and there's a desire for inclusivity, e- even among the the elite. Like, so it seems, you know, counter kind of intuitive that, you know, it's, oh, well, that's exclusive because only 100 of y'all can fit in a room. But it's like the conversations we're having in the room are about inclusivity to some extent. I mean, we have, you know, we have our limitations in that. But, but still, I see that happening in cities, and I don't see it happening in other uh, governmental institutions. Like counties, I see as being very full of fight and angst in counties, because you have, like in York County, for example, you have the eastern side of the county where you have uh, wealthy cities that are part of the Charlotte marketplace, and the western side of the county, which is super rural. And so all county council is, is a battle between the the rural and the city folk, you know what I mean? It's like a it's like a fight all the time. Do you think that there's an, one? I'm curious because you're in that world more than I'm in that world, so I don't have a good knowledge base of this. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the fact that cities, especially a city the size of Rock Hill, um, there's more intimacy to it? You're, you're answering more directly to your citizenry. Yes. Um, every decision you make is yes. more amplified in that way. I'm curious about that, and then. Uh, Part two of my question. Wait a minute, is, are you interviewing me? Do you, <laughs> the other question that I always have is like, you know, I, I, these days with the rise of globalization, with the rise of, you know, sort of a lack of borders between everything, I, I'm seeing so much of a difference between urban and rural in, yeah. in just the way I see things. And even your mention of how the county operates versus how, say, the city of Rock Hill operates. I think sort of paints that picture a little bit. I'm not trying not to see everything through that prism. Yeah. But it kind of looks that way. I mean, I see that politically. I see it religiously. I see it economically. I see it so much. And, um, you know, just how the rural versus the urban functions and how if there's – go. I have an answer. Solve all that and much more. Soylent green. Yes. (laughs) Close. Okay. Food. Weird. Yeah. If we actually had to understand and deal with where our food came from, if we grew our food in the rural areas that surrounded our city and our economy was an integration of the use of the rural areas in new innovative ways, not like sprawling, sprawling tobacco, um, but like, you know, stacked 
things that create, like like Disney would do, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like at Epcot, yeah. you know, innovative ways to grow food. If we have uh, food and waste disposal and we have to really come to terms with where that stuff goes versus just driving it away from my house and taking it somewhere out in the county and dumping it off and it's out of sight, out of mind, and versus me just going to the giant grocery store yeah. where I can just buy something that is not in season anywhere in this part of the world but for yeah. some reason is, is shot up with steroids and perfect in the store. If there was a real visceral relationship with the land that surrounded the city and the activity in the city, I don't think you would have the same angst. That makes total sense. And also what you're talking about, the people who live outside the city that would be making their living doing that work are currently working at Walmart or wherever. Exactly. And so if you had, you would be pro-city growth if that meant that they were going to buy more food for your you know your your work and sustenance in yeah. terms of of how you provide that makes so much sense and even like you were saying psychologically <clears throat> a lot of the when you talk about that divide of the sort of political religious economical a lot of that divide has to do with a lack of like if you live in a city and if you work uh you know if you're a graphic designer at a web marketing company um, and you worry about your Twitter engagements and stuff it's hard to have the same kind of worldview as somebody who lives out in the boondocks and works at a miserable third shift job at Walmart. Right. Like, how do you... And we get so angry when the person... or we we're, Well, we blame so much the right. person who works third shift for being angry right. and call them, you know, whatever, de-evolved and stuff. But it's like, put yourself in their shoes, you know, and think yeah. about their bubble and where they're coming from. And the idea that they have no investment that the yeah. person that's the graphic designer or whatever does. Um, and if they could, that would, yeah, you're absolutely. I mean, awesome. I mean most of the econ- like most of the jobs out in the rural place are people working with things that are completely removed from the actual rural place in and of itself. Like it's the corporate kind of usage of rural land surrounding cities. And then most of the sustenance provided within a city has, no, has it's completely detached from the rural environment that, uh, Right. Unless it's the tourism industry, then you're like, you know, coveting yeah. the rural environment and whatnot. But there, it makes me there's this book by this guy named David Christian called This Fleeting World. And long story short, he divides the entire history of humanity up into three eras. He says the first is foraging when, you know, almost every person on Earth was a forager. The next is agrarian, which starts eh, roughly around the Neolithic Revolution, say 8000 BCE and goes up until the Industrial Revolution. When most people on Earth... Where does he start the Industrial Revolution? He starts the Industrial Revolution. He's loose on it. I started in Florence. I know it's a renaissance. No, that's fair. I I mean, I think I I see that personally, like the the continuation of the renaissance into the Industrial Revolution Revolution, and into the Enlightenment is really a seamless transition. I call it Florence to 1999, to Prince. I call it Florence to Prince. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And that when I go around and speak, I'm like, we're in a new era. Like yeah. Florence started and Prince ended it, and we were in a new era. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I can't disagree with that. I don't think he would disagree with that. He yeah. would argue that starting somewhere in that, say, right. I don't know, screw it, 14 to 1700s, yeah, right. there's a change. And when that change occurs, the way he demarcates the change is he says that most people on Earth are able are not involved in agricultural productivity anymore because yeah. of the machinery is enabling one person to produce enough food for a hundred. Yeah. And the moment that occurs is a, a global shift. Now at that point in his writing, he's basically he punts. He's like, I'm unable to even analyze 
what we are because we're in it. Right. Like this is us. And I get that. Yeah, I this appreciate just that. Happened. This is yeah. where we are. Yeah. It just happened. Yeah. yeah. And he's right. It did just happen. It did. Like totally the, just happened. Yeah. It's it's yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. We figured out a way where you and I can sit here and waste time doing this. Yeah. Because we know somewhere, somewhere somebody is producing our food and, and I, producing our medicine. I think that the shift that's happened most recently, uh, one way to to say it, and, and this will change for me tomorrow, I'm sure, is um, it was goods and now it's people. Uh, I think that's the most recent change from 1999 to 2001 and, and on. And, and I'll give you an example. And you'll like this because um, your fascination with trade routes and their importance in uh, that history. I'm into it. Basically, a story of trade routes. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> one second. I just I firmly believe that trade is a social activity. Yeah. And just like we were talking about cities and the spirit of cities, and there's these different neighborhoods and they have these different flavors to them. Trade is a social activity. If you want to trade with somebody, there's a social element to it. The internet is changing that. But I think a, we're in flux. Social, but there's still a social yeah, element to it. There's still an element where we have to, you know, we're going to learn about each other. There's going to be a relationship there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even if it's with a brand. It doesn't matter. Yes. Yeah, right. Um, there's a relationship. I have skin in the game yeah. with that trade. And I think that's why cities have that vibrancy that sometimes maybe Because there's areas. so rapid trade going around everywhere. You, you yes, and there's so yeah. many relationships. And relationships yeah, yeah. create synergy they create new things yeah you know like they create chaos and and chaos all the beauty that chaos creates and all the bad that chaos creates it's all in a city like me becoming friends with you yeah 15 16 years ago right right Right. (laughs) like i didn't know you at all and then i got to know you and there were certain things that we connected on you know what i mean certain elements of our history that we knew about each other that we could learn about each other and then our wives were good friends but we ended up creating becoming something new which yeah. I would argue that we still are now. Yeah. And we became different people because of us knowing one another. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It's a social activity. Even if we were just trading, even like when you guys are involved in business with people. Yeah, like our clients and everything. It fundamentally yeah. changes you, and it fundamentally changes your client or whomever. Yeah. And thus, it fundamentally changes Rock Hill. Right. You know, and yeah. all of these cities. And that when that's happening at a thousand points within a three-block radius you know what I mean? Like it's amazing. Like, yeah. yeah, and it creates different things. But you know, I don't know if we could have that much trade and that much relationship and that much interaction without a vast agricultural surplus somewhere. Yes, because otherwise famous. you're going to be on a farm and I'm right. going to be on a farm. Yeah, and like at that point, like that's beautiful. And I, you know, when, I love when the we can no longer too. buy food, we're going to have a problem. Well, it's yeah. you know, it's going to take us back. Like if you look at sort of like. When did we start building? You know, you love Athens, dude. You love yeah. Florence. Like all of those things are built by the hands of humans yeah. because food was being produced by somebody by else. By somebody else, right. yeah. Period. Well, story. everything we do, I mean, we're building digital yeah. things on the internet You're, because I mean, we I, go to a restaurant and buy food. You right, know? but you're doing the same thing I'm doing. Like, I'm a teacher. Yeah. I'm literally teaching things that aren't real. I'm giving non real things to, to people that they, you know, and you're yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. Like, because I know somewhere else my food is being produced and my medicine's being produced. Exactly. And like, so I I have this weird relationship with agriculture because I I understand that so much of what we are is based on the ability to industrialize that agriculture. Well, are we, have we been in some type of bubble Pax Romana in the... In the United States? Yeah. That's a great question. If the United States is in like a Pax Americana, you know, if you will, 
which is totally like a a guitar and it, a, oh, a ripped yeah, jeans. Let me tell you what, Max Americana is like yeah. a super hot woman. She's all tanned yeah. out. She's got a bikini. And she's playing an electric guitar, holding a Bud Light. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. And she's in slow mo. She's in yeah. slow mo. Yeah. I think Def Leppard photograph yeah. is playing. Maybe Rat. Yeah, Rat. Right. If, if it's up to me, it's a Rat. But. <laughs> Anyways, if we, I hope you're in control then because you make good decisions. <laughs> oh, yeah. gosh. Out of the cellar holds up. Yeah. Out of the cellar holds up. I'll hear that. I'm I just going to say that one time and then I'm done. I said it twice. <laughs> okay. So anyways, um, I don't know if we're in a Pax Americana. I mean, I think if we are, it definitely was World War II was one of the launches yeah. of us, I feel like. But right? we've been in wars ever since, right? We have been in wars ever since, but, but they don't affect our. There's something right. dramatically yeah. different about that. There's yeah. something that, that that you know you look back on it even now, and as much as I get tired of everybody being like, "I'm talking about the Nazis," like yeah, right. Right. I hear yeah. that all the time. Everybody comparing everything to Hitler and whatever. Yeah. You, it's very challenging to argue that World War II is not a dramatic turning point in oh, every way, shape, or form for yeah. the United States of America. Well, it's when we became the biggest kid on the block. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we're like the Cold War and all that. Aside from the Soviet Union, but even that, like, you know, and so um, I don't know. My answer to that is I don't know if we're in a Pax Americana, but we're in something. Yeah. And and it feels to me like we're in flux. Yeah, like like we're coming out of whatever we were. Yeah. Whatever started World War II, we're coming to an end of whatever that was. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, And one of the biggest ways I say that is that we don't, there is a big, whether urban or rural, there is a giant element right now, and I can I don't even think this is necessarily the United States, I would say the West, of a lack of trust in institutions. Yeah. yeah. There is an individuality that is crept which is not that different probably than like the printing press. Right, right, right. Which yeah. which really pushed yeah. this more individual thinking about things, say five hundred years ago, but it's back. That's back yeah, in full absolutely. and maybe yeah. even magnified. Well the internet's like the printing press multiplied by three dimensions. Exactly. Oh, you know what I mean? Uh, That's yeah. basically what it is. It is. It yeah. it 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 uh, provided the masses uh, access in, to information, just Period. like the printing press did. It's a more efficient printing press. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I completely agree. Have you heard this 500-year theory before in religion? Have mm-hmm. you heard of this? No. Okay, so there's this religious element that's often tossed around in, in Christianity, that there's this 500-year cycle. Um that every 500 years, things, I don't know, whether through divine intervention or, or just normal historical forces, create upheaval uh-huh. and split things. And so they often demarcate it as the fall of the Roman Empire, the creation of the Catholic Church as an institution, you know, say 400s, 500s, yeah. see. And then 1,000s, the great schism between the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics over wow. icons and whatnot. Then the Protestant Reformation 500 years later, yeah, 1517, wow, and yeah. then now. And you're seeing the schisms occurring constantly wow, in the mainline Protestant denominations. Oh, my gosh. That really lines up with right now? It yeah. really that makes lines up. so much sense. <laughs> that theory is correct. It lines up. Confirmed. Yeah. Lines up. I mean, yeah. like, confirmed. We proved it. Yeah. So many of them were splitting, and there were many splits in, in mainline mainline Protestant denominations during the civil rights. Dude, are you well. mainline in Protestantism? <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's commitment, man. I yorked that. <laughs> we're working with the nice. Columbia Museum of Art right now, doing consulting because of. What we're talking to them about is um, the institute, the changing institutions. Like, what is a museum in the new world? What I completely agree. Like, what's what a is, library? Like, why? How do you people? 
yeah, what is it? Like, what's religion? What's yeah. public school? What's a, what's a museum? What yeah, what's public it? school? Yeah. What's a library in yeah. the new economy? I, I completely agree. Yeah. Like, that institutional questioning, that in, which yeah. is good and healthy for a society. It is, yeah. It it's is. healthy for society. It's punk rock. Yeah, it is. Which is what's so great about it. That's what punk rockers did. Yeah. Is they questioned. Question institutions, yeah. They questioned institutions, and they brought it from the grassroots. Like, all of, like we were talking about at the beginning, how we learned so much from that, because it wasn't somebody, it wasn't a top-down yeah. It wasn't somebody from the top saying, you know, Jason, Chris, do X. It was us saying, I yeah. want to do Y, yeah. and by God, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then we created something new on accident, huh. you know? But, like, I see that now. I see a lack of trust in institutions. And I see that we already have the information. We already have access to the information. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm witnessing this more in the trenches, different than you guys are. Y'all see it in probably a, a more illuminated light. But I see it in the trenches of public schools. I see it in how, how do we deal with this? How do we teach history to kids who have access to history at their right. fingertips? Right. Yeah, it's crazy right now that we're, we're all seeing the like pains of this super outdated you know, election system. And the thing yeah. is, is like, it's insane that data is so like, gettable. Like, not only does Facebook and Google know who would win an election, they probably actually could tell you who among all American citizens would actually be the best leader of the country. Right. They could right. tell you that. No, for sure. We have, yeah. a system, we have a system of numbers and stuff that we made up a long time ago when we didn't have Mark Zuckerberg to like lean, lean over and be like, oh, yeah, uh, Bob Johannesson in Michigan, he'd actually be the best. Right. Now we can actually do that. Yeah. And we're not doing it. We're using this like Flintstones-style election system. And it's insane. And that's part of that craziness of transition. Absolutely. Are we, I mean, are we facing the post-American world? Is the American empire coming to an end? As we've known it, I, yes. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's like sad and it's going to be painful. But I mean, yeah, there's no way. No, like, like we're all like, I don't want to say that. I don't wanna be, we want to be open politically on here. But we all have a lot of fears about what's coming next. And the thing is, is like, no matter which side you're on and where your fears are, no matter what happens in four years, it'll, it'll be the same and it'll be just as scary. Well, you know what? That's the thing. I think we've always, I've always grown up thinking that. Like, it really doesn't matter four years from now. It'll be the same place it was. This is the first time uh, that I actually have a fear around Donald right. Trump that I, I feel like that, it, it might not be the same in four years, and that might be to huge detriment. No, and that's it's like I too. would almost choose, uh, you know, just crappy non-action corruptness over the possibility of destruction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll take I'll take like a game show host. Yeah, right. Of like in terms of like being fed up with the government, like which or whatever. I will literally I will take a fake. Hollywood actor, yeah, right, president over Donald Trump, which yeah. I guess he actually sort of is. Yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. about all That's that. True, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah I got to say, yeah. that. you're not way off. Point. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think about all that. I think, I think the next four years are important. But I think that overall, what we're dealing with in the long game is how do you define America in a place where there are so few borders, in a place where, yeah, yeah politically, we have remote controlled drones that can kill human beings anywhere in the world. Um, and militarily, but economically and socially and artistically, we do not, we are not bordered in any way. Mm -mm. We can, you know, there are no borders. I get up yeah. every Saturday morning with my kids and watch Premier League soccer in England, yeah. and it might as well be next door to me. Right, right. I mean, like, 
so, you know, if England breaks out of the European Union, all of a sudden I'm sort of like— So talk about that. Why? I'm, I'm kind of like, well, is this going to affect the Premier League? Am I yeah. still going to be able—I mean, what I mean is like—I <laughs> mean, I know that's—I see that what, all the time. What, what I'm saying is that like the like global politics, global politics versus local politics are just not yeah. dramatically different. Like right. it matters for y'all's business. What happens globally? Because it's not like you know the the tools that you're using are just confined to North Car- South no, Carolina. No, I mean I'm the sorry. internet could go down. That would be a global thing. Yeah, I, you know, um, and then we'd have a big problem. I, I want to go back to this uh, thing I was going to say a little bit ago about trade routes. Like, tell me if I'm wrong in thinking that the success of the industrial revolution is based on the ability to move stuff. Oh no, I totally agree with you. Because think about it. Why build a million widgets in this one town? We don't need a million widgets in this town. Not even a whole widget. It's like a third of a widget that's going to be put together with two other thirds of a widget to make a widget somewhere. I only know the, like, internet version of what you're talking about. Well, like, you know... You're like, not talking about Wicket from the film Willow. Or I you're only saying know widget, Wicket. Right? Wicket. I'm saying Widget, yeah. not Wicket. Right. Yeah. Roger that. Right. Um, the idea that you would have a manufacturing plant in some small town in Lancaster, Rock Hill, and they would make this thing... Uh-huh. And they make two million of them. It's not like the citizens of, of Lancaster need two million of those right, little yeah. metal things. The only reason that makes sense is because they can, it can be moved so efficiently yeah. to, com- to connect with other things and be moved all around the world. That's why you can go in the dollar store and find buckets of things made in China yeah. for a dollar. I mean, how, how is that made and shipped and... And processed and argued over and legal and contracts and everything, all that yeah. gets there and you're able to buy it for a dollar. It's insane. Yeah. The ability to move things at such efficiency was what made the Industrial Revolution. We became more and more efficient in moving things around. Well, the new economy— And moving people around. Well, okay, like so that's the rise I'm, of immigration. So that's what as, I'm as a direct to. result of steam travel. Yeah, yeah, so that's what I'm getting to. So people came along with that, right? But people are always on a spreadsheet at a business. People are in the cost column. And stuff is in the asset column. If you have a bunch of little metal things, they're worth money. And so they're on your asset side of your spreadsheet. Like you guys' Iron Maiden beer? You're saying, but like people cost you money. If you have a bunch of people, they're payroll and you see them as cost. The new economy is switching that paradigm, I think. That people, we're realizing people are your greatest asset. And it's going to be about moving people and connecting people because i mean you look at our like we were talking about a second ago what you do is nothing but you talking and sharing and thinking and getting other people to think what we do is nothing but all of us being in that space thinking and creating and we don't need this stuff you could replace every computer in there with another computer it wouldn't make a bit of difference you know what i mean we just need access to the internet you know so we're do we need to be investing in moving people? Like, I, I want uh, us to do high-speed trains from Charleston to Charlotte to move people. You know, is America going to fall behind on the global stage because we don't have the infrastructure to move people except we have interstates full of crowded cars and hmm. all that? Or is, I mean, do you see that as a problem? Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm, I'm going to put this one back on you guys because – I'm curious about this. Like in the work that you do, y'all do a lot of work um, with like local companies here in Rock Hill, yeah. Charlotte, whatnot. But I'm guessing you do some regional as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, 
are you able to connect with them basically using technology or do you need to move people to make that relationship work? We, like when we work with the Columbia Museum of Art, we go there. When we, um, we've had some clients around the country that we service in different ways on the internet. We don't usually keep those clients. But the clients we have in Columbia, I drive down there and we keep those clients. If I could walk out of this office and get on a train and work on my computer and be on my phone and, and get out in downtown Columbia and walk and then get back in and then get go back and be in Charleston and back in Columbia, you know, whatever, and I can be back, I feel like I could grow my business exponentially. Yeah, I think you could. I don't know, man. I don't know, honestly. Like, I don't, I don't really feel like, I feel like you would have a better sense of that than I would okay. about moving people. I will say this. The United States is ginormous yeah. as compared to every country that we're competing with. Mm-hmm. I mean, California, isn't it like the sixth biggest economy in the world? Like yeah, California right. yeah. alone? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. I doubt California is worried about it. Right. Like, does that make sense, yeah. though? And, and like New York City, they're probably not overly concerned about it. And they it. move people great. Right. There. They do a great Versus, job. So, yeah. and, and California, I think, is pushing towards high-speed rail, as I recall. I hope so. Um, and things of that nature. I wonder if if you guys working in a place that doesn't have that access, right? you know, you yearn for it more. Because yeah, I, I think the fallacy is that people thought that, oh, well, computers are taking over, so everybody's going to be alone in their rooms with the windows pulled down and the shades pulled mm-hmm. down, and that's going to be our new reality. And it's so the opposite. Downtowns could not be—they're more vibrant than they've been in 50 years. Um, yet everybody's on their iPhone and computer. But you go in the coffee shop and it's slamming with people. Well, I listened to your to your old podcast a couple of days ago with Nurkin, with Scott Nurkin. Yeah. And uh, for your listeners, Scott Nurkin is a muralist. Yes. And you guys, uh, just to refresh your memory, y'all were talking about how why is is Nurkin like painting murals? That look old and yeah. look original, and he, yeah. he's doing them by hand. Like, why is that a valuable thing? Why will people pay a lot of money to do that? And um, in your podcast, both of you were talking about how there's just something about this authenticity that people yeah. are yearning for. And the way I heard it was sort of in this sort of sea of convenience. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's very true. I also think that um, in my experience, both as a teacher and just as a a parent and as a friend and as a citizen of the world um relationships are everything yeah absolutely relationships are everything human to human relationships that connection that moment like you know just even me driving down here i mean i live in Asheville, and driving down here to be with you guys and do this so much more meaningful than if i had headphones on and was sitting in Asheville. right right right. so yeah. much more meaningful and i call it connectivity because I, I i i call a relationship a type of connectivity um and i think that everything's about connectivity a subset of that it would be relationships so I, i'm on board with you I, mean, I preach that so as we get towards some type of uh eventual end of this podcast <laughs> is your theme and your teaching and your study that relationships are at the core. Yes. I'm, I'm relationships over programming. Over programming. What does that yeah. mean? It means that, you know, a program that, hey, this is a, a good um, set of steps to follow. Oh, right. You know, to do these things. I think healthy relationships with students and families and parents and with colleagues, a group of people in a room, yeah. thinking, making something great, bringing, you know. Like Florence, dude. Like Florence, yes. like punk rock music. Yeah, like I mean, you know, rock, I write this yeah. blog called Punk Rock Pedagogy, and that's what oh, it's all really? about. Yeah, it's dude, all about teaching 
it's basically all about how I learned everything I know about teaching, not by going to school, but I learned it by being in punk rock bands. I learned how to build something. And you, I feel like one of the luckiest guys on earth because though it's a big institution and it's bulky, it's a state government public school system. Yeah. You know, I get 30 kids, teenagers in a room for an hour and a half every day. Yeah. And they're, they're expecting something. Yeah. And they're up for anything. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's a gift. That's a gift. Yeah. You don't, I mean, just think about like, if you just, if somebody's laid that out for most people, they'd be like, wow, what would I do? Yeah. Right. What would I do? And I would explore a lot of the same things that we're exploring right now. We started a new thing four years ago where at the, in May of every year, we take um, all of our kids in my AP world history class to a giant city in America. That's awesome. And we go for four days. We don't necessarily do start with the Chicago trip. It started with Chicago. Yeah, then nice. we went to Philadelphia. Last year we went to New Orleans. Nice. And we just take them and we give them a lot of free time there. Give them a lot of time, experience stuff. We'll do a few tours. There's a big museum, something they've got to see. Yeah. You know, we'll do it. But mostly we try to give them an opportunity to explore, to get the feeling, to get the spirit of it. And it's all about just mining things for inspiration. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so for me, it's all relationships. And Dude, I, I, the, I would imagine that it's not that different than what you guys experience. In the world of testing, you must have some ridiculous clout to be able to pull that all that type of trip off every year. It, you still got to take care of business. Yeah. You got to take care of business. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. It's not really a clout thing. It's more that, um, you know, there's work to be done. There are standards. Yeah. And, I, and accountability, I'm not going to get way into like wonky education right. stuff, but accountability is important. Yeah. And I believe in it. And I, you know, and as a teacher, I think that all of us should be just like you guys working in the business world. Yeah. You're proud. You're transparent. You want people to see what you do. Yeah, right. right. You have pride in what you've done. You've yeah, created you're doing something. a good job. You're doing you a good job. You believe yeah. in it. And when you, when you screw up, it's okay to have criticism yeah, because right. you're confident that you're, you're giving it all you got. Yeah. You know, that's okay. And I feel like that as a teacher. So when there's testing and there's high stakes testing and things like that, yes, there are elements of that that are negative but overall i welcome a light on what i do yeah because i believe in it that's great that's great well um north bunkham's uh north bunkham right yeah yeah is uh is lucky to have you you've been there for god 20 years (laughs) no i got quite starting my 17th year well that's almost 20 that's basically come on come on yeah (laughs) you know we're close golly man you're old it's boring how are you so old? how could i be that boring (laughs) you know what i mean like i have a pension yeah (laughs) wow nice (laughs) and a gold watch on the way (laughs) they gave me a pin at my my 15 year (laughs) thank you for your and an oscar (laughs) i'm like what an oscar again (laughs) oh so it sounds like bad brains (laughs) (laughs) that's another one what was that? I'll throw this with the other one. That was my joke I made. Oh. Um, <laughs> pretty good. It was pretty good. <laughs> well, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure, man, to have you on the podcast. Gosh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I would like to say for the record, you're one of my favorite people. I hear you. Are you talking to me or Chris? I'm talking or? to you. Oh, you're talking to me. Okay. <laughs> I just met Chris. Chris <laughs> seems very Chris pleasant. Seems great. As does totally Micah. Who, though, I might He's add, not. though Micah is silent on this yeah, podcast, quite there have been a couple moments where he made grunts and laughs yeah. yes yeah i heard it yeah like poetic grunts and laughs oh, yeah some they were sounds, deep they were kind of weird they yeah, were <laughs> I, it made me a little uncomfortable i mean yeah, he didn't honestly. york it no he totally didn't york <laughs> yeah there's no yorking yeah sometimes he gets so nervous as he yorks right before the podcast <laughs> poor guy <laughs> we don't usually talk about it he's like that <laughs> well enough of that bunkum let's move on um <laughs> 
Is there anything you would be remiss to not have said on this podcast? First of all, you have a couple of blogs. You have the one about the punk rock teaching. What's it called? It's called Punk Rock Pedagogy. And uh, you have another one called Field Notes, which is mostly just uh, about dadding. Yeah, the sport of dadding. What it's like to dad. Yeah. Yeah, dadded. And um, those will be on our – you've given those to Madison and stuff. Hopefully yeah, they'll be on Madison's our, uh, got it. All right, sweet. So you'll be able to click on that if you're listening to this somewhere. And um, Chris, any uh, any – thing you'd be remiss not to say before the end of the podcast? I think I've said it enough. I think you have to, my friend. <laughs> I think you have to. Well, then I guess we'll just close on uh, maybe even... A song? A song, or we can even call it a, a prayer if we have to from um, Wise and Silent Micah. I want, I do, I want, two, two. You are... <laughs> nice, nice. I All right. I will definitely bleep that Well, out. we'll see you next week on uh, Old Town, New World. <laughs>